This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the courageous discussion of difficult subjects. Tonight's show is part of an ongoing series about suicide, and tonight my guest is Mary Claire. She's going to be talking about coping with the depression and suicide of a friend. Mary Claire is a therapist in private practice in Vermont. Actually, this is her second appearance on Safe Space. Welcome back, Mary Claire. Thank you. I want to start by asking you if you could tell me a little bit about uh, your friendship and you know, how did you get to know each other and maybe just the story of your friendship at first. Okay. So I became friends with um, her in 1993, and we worked together as therapists at a community mental health agency. We were in meetings together and slowly became friends and uh, helped each other plan our weddings, and then later um, I supported her at her children's birth. Meaning you were actually in the room when she gave birth? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So very intimate. What'd you say? So very intimate. Yeah. Uh, we spent a lot of time at, at both at the agency where we worked, having long conversations, reflective conversations, and and also being silly, and she was a very playful person who liked to tease and joke around, so I would often come into my office and find some silly card. So she had a wonderful sense of humor. Yeah, she did. She was very good at making friends with all kinds of people. And when did you become aware that she suffered from depression? I was mostly aware that she suffered from anxiety, I don't really know that I was aware that depression was happening until the end of her life. So um, I became aware of that pretty early on in the friendship. It was easy for her to become worried about whether I whether I was um, still wanting to be her friend or um, worried about whether other people liked her or felt respecting of her, and she would often call me and say, do you think I'll feel better again at some point? And she think this will pass? And really seeking, you know, outside reassurance from me. And this started very early in your friendship? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. So there were many, many times where we had that kind of conversation so over the years. It's striking because you're portraying, on the one hand, this kind of very playful person yeah. who made friends very easily, and then it sounded like she had this very, a much more hidden vulnerability. That's right, right. That she felt safe enough to sh- to share with you. She did, but and she didn't share it with everybody. And so then, so so you're aware that she feels insecure. She doesn't know if you want to be her friend. This goes on over a long period of time. How did you see things changing? I mean, were you aware that she was really, really struggling for a while before she actually died? Um, I became aware that her anxiety was intensifying after her mother died, which was about two years prior to her death. She actually, uh, when talking to me about her mother being sick and dying, she misunderstood my reaction and thought that I was not that I wasn't uh, appreciating the 
acceptance of this process or that, you know, I didn't think she should be upset and that kind of thing. And so she distanced from me for quite a while after that and later was able to see that um, error in her perception. And we worked through that together. We did that a lot. We worked through periods of distance or periods of anger. It's a high-maintenance relationship, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, yeah, so then, you know, there were periods after her mother died on and off where she um, seemed to be very anxious and struggled a lot in her work. So she she wasn't sure she wanted to be a therapist anymore and um, doubted her ability to handle it. And uh, and so and even uh, I would say five or six months prior to her death, there were good periods for her where she felt light and playful, and then she would slip into darker moods. Right, and the way you say that though, like even five or six months before her death, she was light and playful. You know, five or six months of living in darkness isn't what would would feel like an eternity to her I'm imagining. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I say that because I mean I remember that several of us talked about how she uh it, it was surprising to some people who hadn't been in regular contact with her at the end of her life that she, that this had happened that her suicide had happened because she seemed to be okay five or six months earlier. Mm. Were you surprised? Not entirely. You know, part part of me was and still is. Yet I have I have uh, a kind of long term understanding of her anxiety and self doubt, and um, also some awareness about the significance of her mother's death. How Um, and so tell me about that. So in contrast to what she. temporarily believed it sounds like you did appreciate that this that how serious that was and and how serious was it well i mean her mom was somebody who uh, nancy adored and depended on in in a certain way she let me just back up a little bit so nancy's father died when he was when she was six years old of a heart attack and this was really devastating for, you know, understandably for her mother. And one of the stories that I heard about was of her mother throwing herself, um, trying to throw herself on her husband's grave at the funeral. And Nancy saw that. Mm. And uh, another thing that happened was um, that... mm, I heard about many times was that she, her mother, would not want Nancy to cry. So she would say, "Don't cry. You're going to make me sad." And so I got the sense that that her mother was very needy and not really available to be a strong uh, rock, you know, for yeah. Nancy. Yeah. And um, so when when you have a a parent die, obviously it's uh, a huge uh, change and transition and loss. And I think when there 
what I've understood about that relationship is that it was complicated, and it seems like Nancy's grieving of her mother was complicated. And on one hand, she felt lost without her mother, without, or at least without the hope for her mother to be more solid for her. I don't know if I'm explaining this well enough. Um, you know, I'm actually going to shift gears, Mary Claire, just because I know our time is so short, and I want to really focus on your experience of the friendship and, um, you know, what happened in your friendship right before she died, and then maybe even particularly what happened in it afterwards and the feelings that you've, you know, gotten to know in yourself. So maybe, so, uh, maybe to be more specific, so she, five or six months before she dies, she... Um, She's having some periods of lightness, but you can feel that her anxiety is really increasing. And then what happens at that point? Well, she started to um, become really obsessive about certain things and afraid that there some, something um, bad would happen. And when, in our conversation, she would just go on and on about whatever it was that she was afraid of. Mm-hmm. and. And it increasingly, over the, those five or six months, actually, it's probably even more like four and a half or five months, that she she would increasingly get rambling on and really have a hard time stopping the um, conversation. You know, even if I said, well, I need to go now and, you know, uh, take care of my family or whatever, it, it was it sort of difficult for her to stop and I got a sense that she wasn't very aware of how she was coming across or aware of me. So the relationship became quite strained because it was a very frustrating experience for me to talk with her. And also um, she wasn't getting consistent treatment because she kept finding fault or doubting treatment providers and I was really frustrated about her not being able to stay with treatment and the same was true of medications antidepressants and anxiety medications you know she was prescribed many medications and would only try them for a few days and um, then get scared about it so I would try to encourage her to stick with it and and she would tell me all the reasons that she couldn't, and it was frustrating for me, and it was difficult for me to spend a lot of time with her, but I was also worried about her, so I did talk with her a lot over that summer, and just wasn't really able to help her see clearly, and she wasn't sleeping very well, and in fact, she became convinced that she didn't have a problem with depression or anxiety, but that her problem was a sleep disorder. And she went for a sleep study, and she did all kinds of things like that, and still she couldn't sleep. And she kept saying to me, you don't know what it's like to, you know, live on this little sleep. You can't imagine what it's like. And um, and also she started to say things like, I think, don't you think my children would be better, with, better off without me? Um, How was that for you to hear? Well very upsetting and I would tell her really firmly no that's not true and I'd remind her about what we know about how difficult it is for 
children to lose their parents and how it's the worst thing that can happen, no matter what the circumstances are. And I don't think she, apparently, she couldn't really take that in. She told me she was taking it in. She promised me that she wouldn't hurt herself. Did you become increasingly afraid that she was going to? You know, it really didn't, I really didn't think that she would until, like, maybe the last few weeks I started to get worried about it. And so then I would, I mean, I did think about it earlier in the summer. I know I did because I spoke to her husband a few times and even considered gathering a group of friends together to make an intervention. So, yeah, I was concerned for the about three months prior, but I don't think I really thought she would do that. And then in the last few weeks, I became more concerned, and I had more contact with her and with her husband. And I, you know, was told that they were in a little bit more consistent contact with the psychiatrist. So, and then the final conversation that I had with her was very difficult, in which I really kind of gave it to her. I was, I was getting almost angry at her for, um, refusing treatment and refusing to look at the risks she was taking and and also, you know, refusing to see the burdens that she was facing on people like myself and her husband and other friends. And so now, you know, in retrospect, Mary Claire, um, how, you know, how, how now that we know that she did end her life, mm-hmm. how, how is it for you to hold that? you know, that the pain of how difficult your last encounter with her was. No. I don't like to think about it. Yeah, understandably. I, I, I at first uh, had a lot of compassion and warm feeling and really missing her and for several months. And I think since January, I'm not sure... I think it's because Christmas time was especially hard without her, um, but I'm not sure. Uh, since January, I haven't wanted to think about it, and every time I do, I get a bad feeling in my stomach. And so how is it for you to talk about it right now? Well, I notice that my heart rate is faster and mm, a little bit of a tense stomach, and part of my mind is trying to organize my thoughts well. Other parts are having sad feelings and frustrated feelings. And yes, you know, so often uh, people talk about these sort of three feelings that survivors of a suicide have: this combination of guilt over not having been able to stop it, grief over the loss of the person, but also anger that this person, you know, killed someone that was loved. And it sounds like you had some anger ahead of time. Do, have you struggled with feeling angry? since then have I struggled with having felt angry before she died no with a feeling angry with her now I I understand that part of me that is angry and sometimes that part is so blended in with me that I I don't struggle with it (laughs) I guess that's what I meant more is you so you do experience feeling angry with her oh yeah yeah Uh, This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Mary Claire about the suicide of a dear friend. And, um, you know, I want to ask you about um, 
here you are, you are a therapist. And if she was a therapist, you know, shifting to the part of you that I imagine has felt like, oh, why couldn't I save her? Why couldn't I have done more? Or, you know, and I'm wondering how that is for you, for the you, for the parts of you that are a professional therapist. How how has it changed how you react to your patients who are suicidal? I definitely have experienced a feeling uh, or thoughts about, um, you know, why didn't I go over and make her go to the hospital? Yeah. Do more. How could I let my frustration and anger get in the way there? And then part of me understands why. Is that what you think it was, that it was your frustration and anger that prevented you from doing that? Or or some wanting to respect her autonomy or, you know? Well, there, yes, that was in there, too. I mean, for example, I at one point asked if, um, I probably shouldn't have asked, but I asked if we could organize some people to bring meals to the family because I knew she wasn't cooking much and her husband was working. And he loved that idea. And then she said, no, I need to be able to do this myself. So I thought, okay, good, try to do it yourself. (laughs) And, yeah, so there was some concern about respecting her autonomy. Other friends felt that, too, when I talked to them about gathering a group of people together to go meet with her and her husband. You know, they felt like, I don't know if we should intrude. And so there's that part of me that you know I, I have some skills I could I could be useful but the, the fact of the matter is I think really I'm not her therapist I was her friend and I was like too involved to be able to help as a therapist in terms of how um, how I'm experiencing this issue when it comes up in my practice with my current clients I do notice that I am I, I guess I would say extra uh, cautious and ask more questions, pursue the issue more fully, deeply, although I I think I always have. I used to work on a crisis team for many years and did a lot of risk assessment. So um, I've always been pretty thorough about that, but it's very charged for me when it comes up now. I get scared. I can imagine you do. I mean, I really don't want to lose anybody to suicide because I'm already dealing with this one stomachache, I don't need another one, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like you've been able to share the grief process with the other people who are close to her? Yes. Yes. And is it hard? Because I can imagine that people have so many different feelings. You know, each, each one of you has so many different parts that have different feelings. And then, you know, is it hard to, to grieve differently or to be in different places at different times? Well, it actually, it's not like that. Actually, it was sort of surprising and great relief to this core group of friends. All of us had a very similar experience of the friendship with Nancy over the years as well as the months leading up to her death as well as, you know, our own personal processes and thoughts about intervening or not and how we were responding Everybody shared this feeling of frustration and anger and helplessness. So it was really helpful to be able to share those stories as well as tears and compassion for her and her family. And and we we actually had several gatherings um, in the fall and winter with those people and with her husband and children and 
probably will have more. How um, old are her children? Twelve and nine. So you had a meeting that her kids were part of? Uh, no, no. Well, let's see. We did both. We had meetings without her husband and children, and we had a, a gathering that was more of a, a little bit more of a party or on time when her children and been with her. It's so poignant because as I'm hearing you, it sounds like part of what she really carried was the death of her parent when she was six, her dad, and that then the losing another parent was this really devastating thing for her. She was orphaned, effectively. And then her children are facing the loss of their parent. It's something about that that feels so poignant. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are there ways that you can be telling her kids about her. I mean, I'm wondering if that's part of what this group can do is how to keep her memory alive or for these kids. Well, we've all thought about that. It's, it's tricky. You know, kids those ages, 12 and 9, are not particularly interested in talking about their feelings unless, you know, they're with their parents, you know. Right. So I know, I know that the 12-year-old has talked a lot with his dad. Um, the nine-year-old has had a harder time talking, and um, I think that's understandable developmentally, you know. I um, I think that some of us have let them know that if, you know, that we're comfortable talking about her, especially the the friends who were closest to the, to the sort of family life, including kids, you know, friends who have kids their ages and who are closer to the kids. Yes. Mary Claire, we're going to have to stop, but I, I just want to appreciate so much your courage in talking about this. I think sometimes there's a shame of being even associated with someone who kills themselves, and I think your willingness to speak about it and talk about it is so helpful for so many of us who have lost somebody. So thank you so much for being my guest tonight. Yeah, thank you, Anne, Thanks for having me. This is Dr. Anne at WMPG at Safe Space. I've been talking to Mary Claire about her experience with a close friend who suffered from severe anxiety and ultimately it killed herself. I want to say if you or someone you love is suffering from depression and you're concerned that they may be suicidal, here in southern Maine there is a local phone number you can call, 774-4357. Again, that's 774-4357. That number is available 24-7. Next week, my guest will be Sherry Huber, Zen Master, who is going to be talking about her own attempted suicide and her journey back. If you have a request or a future a suggestion for a, top, for a show, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. My thanks tonight to Goober for mixing the sound, to Neil McKenty for being my consultant, and Maurice Lennon for the music. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.